from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name's Jenna Johnson. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, March 16th. Today, voting in the time of coronavirus. Whether warmer weather will have an effect on the outbreak and enhanced health screening at airports. The campaigns of Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders have been very deeply affected by the spread of coronavirus and had to come up with a new and creative ways of campaigning. I'm sorry this has been such a disjointed effort here because of the connections, but... We're going to take a question now from Maureen Jenkins. Maureen, um, you are unmuted. Maureen? Maureen, are you there? They've been holding virtual events. And I want to thank everyone for tuning in. Look. Which makes it very difficult to go about the typical work of recruiting voters to your side. I look forward to answering your questions, assuming you don't have more technical difficulties. But first, let me say, I know that this is an incredibly anxious time for all our families. I'm Elise Vebeck, an investigative politics reporter at The Washington Post. And where are you right now? I am sitting in my closet recording uh, in the middle of a bunch of coats. I, too, am in a closet recording (laughs) amid a bunch of coats and a blanket. So at this point, we've already seen the coronavirus have some effects on the 2020 campaign. Can you talk me through some of the things that we've seen so far? Yes, absolutely. Good evening from Washington, D.C., and welcome to this unique event, the CNN Univision Democratic presidential debate with the two leading... In terms of the most recent Democratic debate, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders faced off alive, but not before an audience, which made the whole dynamic of the discussion quite different. We come together tonight at an extraordinary time in our country when people are worried about far more than just presidential politics. I think that campaigns are really sort of making this up on on the fly. Well, first thing we have got to do, whether or not I'm president, is to shut this president up right now because he is undermining the doctors and the scientists who are trying to help the American people. They've never encountered a situation like this, and that goes for more than campaigns. Elections are difficult affairs, even in the best of times, and with coronavirus keeping a lot of people home and making a lot of voters anxious about what to do, election officials have been taking a couple of different approaches. We've seen states like Georgia and Louisiana delay their presidential primaries altogether, which is probably the most extreme step. In most other states, you've seen steps ranging from putting hand sanitizer and disinfecting wipes in polling places for the use of poll workers and voters. You have people enforcing social distancing in voting lines. A slightly more intense step, more drastic step, is having polling places move out of nursing homes. That has been a big trend around the country Public health officials and election officials are very concerned about having large groups of voters come to nursing homes and other care facilities to vote because those people could bring the virus to a vulnerable population. 
So it, it seems like election officials are having to deal with two competing problems at the same time, both trying to keep people safe if they do choose to vote, trying to make sure that they aren't going to get sick just by exercising their right to vote, but also trying to encourage people to still vote or at least give them other options to be able to make sure that they're represented in the primary process, even if they're worried about the coronavirus. That's absolutely right. And it's a very difficult problem that they're weighing, particularly for election officials who are running races that are due to happen on Tuesday. Those are the states of Arizona, Illinois, Ohio, and Florida, all large states, important states, states with large elderly populations. So it's quite a task for them. The other thing we've seen election officials do is encourage people to vote early or to vote absentee if they can, and it's still possible. But if election officials are trying to convince people to vote by mail, are there any potential problems with that plan or challenges, especially if these are primaries that are supposed to be happening imminently? Absolutely. Rolling out a vote by mail system in terms of primaries that are about to happen is very difficult. And so a handful of election officials have just been trying to get the word out to people who already have the access to absentee voting to make use of that. There's a lot of discussion right now about what states will do for the November general election if coronavirus remains a threat. And that's where the topic of voting by mail uh, becomes that much more relevant. There are a lot of states that are interested in increasing the reach of those systems, making vote by mail more accessible to people. We know that in a handful of Western states, all elections are already run by mail, so they're all set. But around the country, it's not a system that's terribly entrenched. And so there are election officials who are really looking at steps they can take to at least increase the intake possibility of that system a little bit. And are there any states where election officials are trying to do something innovative or take a different approach in terms of giving people the chance to vote without getting sick? Yes. In Ohio, we've seen a number of steps from the Republican Secretary of State, Frank LaRose. You know, the challenge is getting the word out. Uh, people are spreading disinformation, whether that's maliciously, I hope not, but uh, or whether that's just out of fear or maybe some level of ignorance. He is someone who is trying to, above all, communicate with the public in his state. If you follow our, our accounts on social media, we are doing a lot of myth busting right now. And, you know, sometimes when you're when you're doing these little one off myth busting missions on social media, it feels like sticking your finger in the in the dam to try to stop the flood. He's very active on social media in terms of getting the message out, not only to voters to turn out, but the state has been very interested in recruiting more poll workers, which is potentially a problem in the Tuesday states because the average age of poll workers tends to be above 60. And that is a very vulnerable population when it comes to coronavirus. So around the country, they are expecting many poll workers to opt out, sometimes last minute. We've been recruiting poll workers. Uh, I, I was able to talk my little brother into doing it last night. It does seem like what election officials are facing is the potential that it could have an effect on the outcome of the primary process. Is there a sense that there is one Democratic candidate over another that has more to lose if the primary process gets 
pretty profoundly disrupted by the outbreak? It is a question on everyone's minds. And I have to say, it's quite hard to tell. It's hard to draw conclusions. Uh, What we do know is that Joe Biden does count on an older base of support in general. And so if his voters were to not turn out in key states, it's it's likely that that would have a detrimental effect on his campaign. But I think that there's also an argument to be made that this could be helpful for Biden's campaign, just from the simple fact that he is significantly ahead in the delegate count. And it feels like something that essentially maintains the status quo, that, that I don't know how many people are really paying that much attention to what they're saying on the campaign trail right now or really thinking about voting right now, that if nothing really changes in the dynamic of the race in the coming weeks as people are just so focused on this public health crisis, then that could potentially be good for Biden. It could be. And I think that it will be interesting to see uh, if Biden continues a lead that becomes insurmountable for Bernie Sanders, what decision Sanders will make. I think that there could be pressure on him at a certain point to think about the future of his campaign in relation to these primaries, which are placing so much unique pressure on election officials and on voters themselves. We don't know how this is going to play out. I, we don't know whether this will get worse before it gets better. I've heard election officials describe these upcoming contests as, in certain ways, unprecedented. No one can recall an election or a primary that's taken place under circumstances like this, where the American public is essentially sheltering in place and being asked to have as little contact with other members of the public as possible. We want to act based on the science, based on what the professionals tell us. And so uh, the public health professionals have told us that it's safe to hold an election on Tuesday if we follow these best practices. Elise Viebeck is a political investigative reporter for The Post. We spoke to Frank LaRose, Ohio Secretary of State, on Friday. But on Monday, just before 3 p.m., Ohio Governor Mike DeWine announced that he no longer believes that it's safe to hold the election on Tuesday. It is clear that tomorrow's in-person voting does not conform and cannot conform with these CDC guidelines. Instead, he's recommending moving the election back to June 2nd. We should not force them to make this choice. Uh, A choice between their health and their constitutional rights and their duties as American citizens. Anyone that claims that there is a seasonality to it, whether it's a family member of yours, whether it's a public official, whoever you see claim that this has a seasonality to it, I'd ask for the evidence. Because we don't even have clear evidence that SARS was seasonal. That's another coronavirus. We don't have clear evidence that MERS has a seasonality to it. We're still studying those, and doctors really are not confident about this. They're really saying that we need to be taking much more seriously the need for mitigation, that containment has essentially failed at this point. So us banking on a nice warm spring is wishful thinking at this point. 
I'm Andrew Friedman. I am the deputy weather editor here, and I also cover various science topics from time to time. And where are you right now? I'm in Silver Spring, Maryland, at home, as are many Post reporters. I think when we get into April and the warmer weather, that has a very negative effect. There's a theory that in April, when it gets warm, uh, historically, that has been able to kill the virus, so we don't know yet. One theory, when it gets a little warmer, it miraculously goes away. I hope that's true. You know, in April, supposedly, it dies with the hotter weather. A lot of people think that goes away in April with the heat. So I feel like we keep hearing from President Trump and from a lot of public officials that there is this hope that the coronavirus is going to be a seasonal thing, that when the summer starts, we're going to see at least some abatement in the spread of the virus. How true is that? So it is true that other coronaviruses, other respiratory viruses, tend to have a seasonal cycle. They tend to ramp up in the wintertime and abate sometime in the spring and summer, and then come roaring right back in the fall and winter of the next year. However, experts have told me that we don't really know if that's going to happen here, that there's really no reason to think that that is what's going to happen. And and what would make this coronavirus different from what we've seen with other types of coronavirus or other respiratory diseases? Yeah, so this coronavirus is brand new. So nobody has any immunity to it. So that's number one. Number two is we really don't know a lot about the characteristics of the virus itself. What are the transmission characteristics? What conditions does it transmit best in? Some of this is going to be figured out at the lab level, studying the pathogen under, you know, close laboratory supervision and figuring out, okay, well, it really prefers these conditions and it can survive on a surface this long under this temperature and humidity versus this temperature and humidity combo. They really haven't figured that out yet. And there's no reason to think based on where it is spreading now that this is going to go away in, say, April, May, June, given the fact that it's spreading actively in Singapore, in Thailand, in other countries where it's far warmer than it is in the United States, uh, Europe and China. So basically that if it is spreading in those countries in warmer places, then that kind of undermines the idea that this is not a virus that can thrive in a place that's warm. Yeah, it undermines that idea that it can't thrive in warm places. And I've seen this being passed around online. I've seen this uh, from public officials. This is a very pernicious rumor or whatever you word you would use to describe it. And there's just no medical evidence yet to show that it's the case that this is really going to definitively abate once temperatures get, say, above 80 degrees or 85 degrees or what have you. There's two reasons to think that it might. One is human behavior, since we're not really inside in close quarters all that often in the summertime. And the other one is the virus itself, the virus characteristics itself. And the first one isn't that much of a comfort for scientists. And the second one is just a giant question mark right now. 
I was a little bit shocked when I talked to several epidemiologists and several virus specialists who have studied coronaviruses and studied other outbreaks to learn that there really isn't consensus on this issue at all and that it's it's a very shaky claim to be making right now especially when uh, you look at the global map of where it's spreading and realize that that a lot of these are are milder places that it really isn't just limited to a, a particular temperature range there is a particular temperature range if you look at the largest outbreaks but is that due to temperature and humidity or is that due to other factors and it's going to take a while for scientists to sort that out Andrew Friedman writes about weather for the post Now, one more thing. Over the weekend, the Trump administration announced that the UK and Ireland will now be included in the new restrictions on foreign nationals traveling to the US from Europe. All of our health experts presented information. Dr. Fauci will reflect on some of those numbers, made a unanimous recommendation to the president that we suspend all travel from the UK uh, and Ireland that will be effective midnight, Monday night, Eastern Standard Time. Airports across the U.S. struggled to manage all the travelers hoping to make it into the states before restrictions set in. At Dallas-Fort Worth Airport, there were reports of a three-hour wait in the customs line. At Chicago O'Hare, some people reported waiting up to seven hours. And much of that was because of new enhanced health screenings that went into effect on Saturday night. Madalika Sika, the executive producer of Post Reports, happened to be flying back from the UK into Washington, Dulles over the weekend. She recorded her journey home and how those enhanced health screenings played out in real life. It's late Saturday afternoon in London, and I've just watched yet another White House briefing where the administration has indeed added the UK and Ireland to the European travel ban. Now, as an American citizen, that doesn't affect me. I'll still be able to travel and get home from London to Washington, D.C., despite the ban. But what it will mean is that there'll be a mad rush now in order to get out before the ban takes effect midnight on Monday. Americans and Europeans who need to get to the States are going to be rushing to get on a plane So it's going to be very interesting when I get to the airport around 24 hours from now to see how crazy it is or whether people are just resigned to the fact that they're going to have to stay put. It's kind of hard to believe, but I'm actually now sitting on the plane from London to Washington, which hopefully will leave on time. And uh, it's quite a saga. London Airport, one I'm very, very familiar with, was... Not desolate, but it wasn't the same kind of crazy crowdedness that there usually is at one of the world's busiest airports. Um, Maybe this is the last stretch of people trying to get from place to place. Um, 
ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Washington Dulles Airport. The local time here is just after 11.30 in the evening. Please remain seated with your seatbelt fastened. Actually, finally deplaning two hours late. Finally getting off this plane and landed in D.C. So they've opened up one kiosk for everybody else who isn't global entry. So we are waiting, um, going through immigration, and we'll find out what exactly the precise medical screening is that the president was tweeting about on Sunday. Okay, hard to believe, but I'm actually now sitting in a cab heading home. That wait turned out not to be too long, but the precise medical screening involved being asked where we'd been. I'd been to the UK and Spain. Also asked whether we had been to China, Iran, or Italy, to which the answer was no. Nobody took my temperature. Nobody asked any other health questions, even though my voice is rather raspy, which I think is from a dry airplane sitting in there for 10 hours. When we got on the plane in London, we were all asked to fill in a form, United States Traveler Health Declaration, that asked where you'd been, asked about your personal details, asked whether you'd been in touch with anyone with the virus, asked whether you had any symptoms, cough, temperature, aches. Um, I'm able to give you that much detail because nobody asked for this form when we arrived. Nobody asked any details. Nobody took our temperature. Um, So that at least was my experience of what the president has called precise medical screening happening at designated airports across the country. I'm Matalika Seca. I'm executive producer of Post Reports, and I'm in a cab heading home to bed. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. This is a great time to sign up for the Post newsletter on the coronavirus outbreak. You can stay updated on our latest reporting and learn how to keep yourself safe. Any article you click on in the newsletter is free to access. To sign up, go to WashingtonPost.com slash virus newsletter. The Post is also offering live coverage and stories with critical health information free every day on our homepage and at WashingtonPost.com slash coronavirus. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post.